since we're at the Mindfulness Facilitators Retreat, I thought I'd begin tonight with talking about mindfulness. And I was all preparing to give the talk, and, you know, of course, this is the thing I'm most passionate about in life and practice. And I went down to the dining hall to get dinner, and I don't know if anybody saw this, but I was grabbing a bowl for my soup and I I grabbed something in the shape of the bowl but it was a plate, one of those little plates and I ladled the soup and (laughs) laid it onto the plate, (laughs) ladled it onto the plate. And I thought, perfect for the night I'm giving a talk on mindfulness. (laughs) Anybody see me? (laughs) So, you know, we practice and we practice and that's the story, that's what it is, it's a practice and it's so amazing because we're not perfect and the practice teaches us so much about ourselves in the ways that we are mindful and the ways we are mindless. I want to step back a little bit and talk about the bigger picture of the mindfulness movement, if you want to call it that, because that's what we're kind of, this retreat is situated in, that there's a whole, the huge interest in mindfulness, as all of you know, or many of you know. I remember when I first started practicing, when I first started meditating, kind of late 80s, and it was something that nobody talked about. I mean, it was very secret because it was weird, right? And I remember there was this very specific moment when I was talking, I came back from meditating in Asia and I went to my best friend and I said, I have something to tell you. I think I'm a meditator. (laughs) And she looked at me like, what? Like I had gone completely crazy. Who are you? What what is that? And... um, and so, and then just recently, I met with this, so she was my friend from college, and we, I met with her f- family over New Year's, I guess, and they begged me to teach them to meditate, the whole family, <laughs> the 14-year-old daughter, and I just said, okay, but take a photograph, because I want proof, so I have this nice photo when I give PowerPoints about mindfulness, I say, these are the people that used to think I was crazy, and now they love it and want to do it. So anyway, it's come, it's come around. Mindfulness has come around. Um, it was been on, mindfulness has been on the cover of Time magazine twice. You've probably seen it. Both times it's with a beautiful blonde woman serenely meditating, <laughs> which leads us to believe that only white blonde women can meditate, which if that's the case, we're in for some big trouble. And seriously, if this... Um, if in five to ten years we look at the movement and it's only reaching a certain class or ethnicity or race or background, it will be a failure. It is a practice that be, can, can be transformative, can transform people no matter what their background, no matter what their religion it's going to appeal to different people in different ways. And what is most important is as we go out and facilitate it, that we speak to the communities that we are part of. And um, so the, the teaching of mindfulness is, uh, the teaching of the teachers of mindfulness is incredibly important. 
And as you know, you can't just teach mindfulness. You can't, um, you can, well, for instance, you don't have to have lived through history to teach history. You have to have lived through mindfulness to teach mindfulness, right? So we've seen this explosion of interest, this explosion of people wanting to teach. Uh, There's now, there were probably like in the 60s, like three books on mindfulness. And one of them was Alan Watts, you know, or Kaplo Roshi. There were probably like three books. And now when I just went on Amazon and I said, how many books uh, with the title Mindfulness in it? 64,000 and something. I mean, there are repeats, right? There, it wasn't all. But it was 64,000 books related to mindfulness. And there's mindfulness for dummies, mindfulness for horse enthusiasts, mindfulness for, as, for knitter, knitters, I'm not kidding, mindfulness for angry birds. You know that game, that video game? Mindfulness Angry Birds. There is a book called that. It's, um, it's, it's permeating into every corner of society, and it's so interesting. And I was just today talking with, uh, with the staff at Spirit Rock, and I was saying, you know, maybe in another 20 years, mindfulness is just going to be part of what we do. You know, people get up, they meditate. And it's just, oh, yeah, that's what I do. I meditate because it's so part of it. Maybe it'll be part of, part of uh, schools. And so there's physical education, there'll be mental education. And it's just people won't even question it. And then someone came up to me and they said, oh, well, it's kind of like Greenpeace. Greenpeace was really radical when it started out. And it was out in the ocean with the, um, you know, doing the protests in the ocean but it was one of the first people to bring consciousness to environmental issues. And now, who doesn't recycle? You know what I mean? It's, it's dribbled down in a different way. It's not, the, it's not the radical form. It's not the radical form of intensive Buddhist monastic retreat practice. But imagine when it becomes incorporated into society and cultures. And how does it happen? Through individuals transforming other individuals. And of course, um, it gets distorted. You know, Women's Health Magazine last year, the year before, had an article, and the pull quote was, mindfulness reduces anxiety and decreases belly fat. <laughs> I assume you're all waiting for that to happen, right? <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing when mindfulness meets kind of consumeristic, utilitarian, U.S. culture, and of course there's many cultures within it, but you see what happens. It's an interesting merging. We can look at all the many sectors that mindfulness has gone into, and it's hard to even, it's hard to even figure it out in a certain way because so much of it is bottom up. So much of it is individuals like yourselves who practice and have a deep connection to it and then start bringing it into whatever setting that you're a part of, whether you're uh, you know, an educator, you bring it into your school, or you bring it into your, psych- your you know, psychotherapy practice, or you're a health practitioner. It just is infiltrating in ways. And there are organizations, of course, and it's in the medical world, it's in the mental health world, it's in education, it's in academia, it's in business, workplace, corporate, military, law enforcement, arts and creativity, politics and international. It's, it, it, it's everywhere. Mark, where did you go? You went to 
uh, overseas to teach? Did you hear that? He said he went to teach United Nations World Food in Senegal, directors of the program there in Senegal. So it's so interesting. It's just so interesting to see where this is going. And it's just the beginning as far as I'm concerned. Now, one of the reasons that mindfulness is so popular is because the science has really increased over these years. So in the 70s, the first scientific studies were done. There was probably two or three, and for about another decade or 15 years, there were still two, three, four, or five. But in the last, the last 10 years, incredible amount of scientific research. So now there's probably 3,000 studies about. And if you also were to look at... Um, well, I often use this analogy, but in the, if you were to look at how many scientific studies there are for health, heart disease and how it's impacted by exercise, you would probably find 50,000 studies. So even though people are very excited about mindfulness, it's still a very young field. And most of the research has not been done to the gold standard they're not, it's not double blind, it's not controlled, it's not longitudinal, there's often not a um, placebo. So I bring this up because there's something beautiful that's happening with the science embracing mindfulness. And because in this culture, science is so highly esteemed that it it, it makes people believe mindfulness. I'm going to try it. Well, I just read about it. You know, today there was a scientific article. It's a Harvard Business Review. It came out. It said, women multitask and need mindfulness more than men. <laughs> really? Okay. So I checked this one out. Basically, the reason is, is because it turns out women, according to this research study, women are more adversely impacted by multitasking than men and tend to multitask more, which has all these negative effects, like lack of, um, you know, you're less efficient, you're less effective, and more prone to errors. So they said, and the answer is, be mindful. You know, the science is, as many of you know probably, but science is something to pay attention to with a grain of salt, to be curious about. And when you facilitate mindfulness, it's, uh, people often really love to hear the sci- some scientific studies. It helps increase their confidence in what we're doing. But not to oversell it, really not to oversell it, because the field is still very young. The neuroscience of it is even worse. We know much less about the neuroscience, but everybody wants to say, oh, brain changes. It changes your brain. Here's what happened. There's a really wonderful book called Brainwashed, The Seductive Appeal of Mindless Neuroscience. And it talks about how how just because a certain part of the brain lights up, people then say, oh, that's the compassion part of the brain. Well, it's associated with compassion, but it doesn't mean the thing that you did resulted in that. It it can mean many, many, many factors. So again, to just keep an open and critical mind, but it's a really nice balance to walk between using the science when we facilitate, but also keeping, as I said, not overselling it, and also being skeptical. And really, when you 
and this is just an aside for facilitating, that you look at the research you're quoting, actually read the papers, find out the limitations, so that you're not just kind of saying, oh yeah, I heard mindfulness, it's good for the brain. It decreases your uh, belly fat. All right, and, and as my dear colleague often says, Marv Belzer, who I have, uh, he's my collaborator, collaborator at UCLA, and he always says, if I were to find out that mindfulness made you more anxious, more depressed, less compassionate, and increased your blood pressure, I would do it anyway. <laughs> because I love it, and it's good, and I know it's good, and you know it's good. You wouldn't be sitting here if you didn't know it was good. And, that, and that's part of the, the interest, I think, in people facilitating it, is because you love it. And you've seen how you've changed. And you've seen the potential for transformation. And you know that this is not just about personal transformation, but it's about, it's about relational transformation. It's about transforming organizations and institutions. And ultimately, we can think really big, global transformation. So we'll have a scientist come in a couple of days and he'll give you much more about the research so you'll get more current with both what he's doing and the general research. And, but I just wanted to bring it in because it's an important piece. So how do we think about mindfulness? We can't find mindfulness in the brain, by the way. Scientists can't agree on it. There's been arguments forever about definitions. The philosophers have argued about definitions. The Buddhist scholars have argued about definitions. Um, you, it's just, mindfulness is this thing that we all kind of know what it is, but it's sort of like the elephant and everybody's pointing to a different part of the elephant and they're saying, oh, the trunk is mindfulness. No, the tail is mindfulness. No, the leg is mindfulness. It's a multifaceted, complex thing that when we look at it from many angles, it makes a whole. The word was first translated and coined in the beginning of the 20th century by um, the British scholar Rise Davids. Is his name. I think I'm pro- I may be pronouncing that right. He um, actually deliberated. So the, the word in the Buddhist, um, the Buddhist textual language, Pali, is is Sati, S-A-T-I, and he debated a long time for settling on mindfulness, I discovered. So in, in the, like, the end of the 19th century, he was calling it mental activity and also just thought. So he was playing with a lot of different words as he tried to translate these early texts. And then it was only in 1910 that he settled on the word mindfulness. And the word mindfulness is, so it's, it's kind of a translation of a word meaning remembering, actually. That's, that's the, what the word technically means, remembering. And I think mindfulness also was associated, it, it, had, a, it had an almost connection to, um, to religious language, to, to Christian language, like, a, like almost a prayer, a mindfulness. It, it had some association there. But it's not bad remembering, and the, the, the Buddhist teacher, Analyo, he explains that sati, the word, involves remembering to focus on what is otherwise too easily forgotten, the present moment. So it's a nice way of thinking about how to define mindfulness. 
But mindfulness has lots and lots of um, ways of thinking about it. So it's generally, no, nobody ever translates it as remembering. It's usually um, translated as paying attention to present moment experiences. John Kabat-Zinn says, uh, in, with non, non, open, non-judgmental, I can't remember ex- his exact definition, I'm sure many of you know it, um, I always say, paying attention to our present moment experiences with openness, curiosity, and a willingness to be with what is. All of these definitions tend to make it uh, make mindfulness seem like it's an application of attention, that we're paying attention in a certain way with openness and curiosity and a quality of being present. I'll go into it in a little bit because I'm gonna I'm getting starting out a bit abstract, but I'm gonna get more practical and especially practical related to you practicing here today. So some people say that if you just see mindfulness as an application of attention, you're really missing something. That mindfulness in the fuller context is connected to to um, wisdom and to wise discrimination. So that, that connection to, it's not just you're paying attention, but it's what you're paying attention to and what you're cultivating. Whether you're cultivating wholesome or skillful states of mind or whether you're cultivating unskillful, unwholesome and abandoning these states of mind. So it's, it's way more complex than we often uh, think it to be or as the, the popular news media lets you think it is. Mindfulness is often confused with what you might think of as a set of outcomes connected to mindfulness. So mindful, people say, I'm mindful when they're meaning I'm compassionate, and, or I'm kind, or I'm more patient from practicing. And that's, it's wonderful. Those things do. They are connected. They're outcomes connected to it, but they're not exactly the mindfulness themselves. There are other beautiful qualities of the heart and mind that are cultivated. Sometimes people talk about mindfulness more as just a state of being. I'm just living in mindfulness. Open, present, connected. It's nice to live there. And we get there. We get there through the practice. We can get there in a state. So it's kind of seen as a state, the state of mindfulness. And then what I've noticed lately is broadly anything kind of holistic is called mindfulness. So... Mindful music, mindful living the mindful life, mindful, I, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's being used in a way that, that kind of loses its meaning. But it's, it's a, you know, it's an English word. I mean, there's no reason that it can't be used that way. So, I will, for the sake of today and for the sake of our practice, we can just know that it's nuanced, it has lots of meanings, sometimes people get confused, but for here, for our practice, we're practicing living in the present moment. We're practicing applying moment-to-moment attention, trying to be more and more present, open, curious, willing to be with life as it is. This is what we're doing here. And so this is the end of your first day of practice. And as always, the first day is exhausting. Anybody tired? Just curious. Yeah, everybody tired? Sorry, anybody not tired? Let me just see. Um, So, because you've been working hard to tame this wild mind. It's hard to be mindful. The funny thing about mindfulness is people love it so much. They're so interested. They're so attractive. But it's actually really hard. 
we have the and, and we have these minds that have been taught to be distracted for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, and so on years to be distracted. So when we come to a meditation retreat or we practice at home and we invite ourselves into the present moment, it's about the last thing our mind wants to do. We're going to think. We're going we're gonna to think. We're going to plan. We're going to try to... It, it, we're retraining a brain that's done this activity personally for us for however long we've been alive. But we can also think of it as something that our species has done. The wandering mind has had a very powerful adaptive function. It has protect, being alert, being alert to threats, having a mind that is kind of running around, tr- looking after this, trying to pay attention is incredibly important for the survival of our species. So we have not gotten eaten by saber-toothed tigers because our mind was, we had brains that were um, quickly able to detect and react to a threat. This is why we're still around. So it was a highly adaptive survival skill, but nowadays it's maladaptive. Now it floods our system with, adre- with, um, with adrenaline and cortisol, it increases our heart rate, it raises our blood pressure, and it gradually makes us ill. So even though our fight or flight response is not necessarily the most appropriate response for the type of threats we face today, although sometimes it is, this is what we're doing. So I like to say this, especially to beginners, and and by the way, as I talk about this and you think about many of you are working with beginners, you can borrow some of the language of how I talk about, oh, this might be interesting, this might be helpful, so feel free, everything is up for grabs. So So if you're having a hard time today, it's because your biology, your brain, is telling you to do something completely different than focus in the way that we're doing. So you can give yourself a break. Take a breath. Okay. I'm not doing anything wrong. In fact, I'm doing something that has actually helped me for millennia. Not me personally, but you know what I mean. So the problem is, as I said, it becomes somewhat maladaptive. It creates it's not so good for our, 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 our nervous system, for our human organism. We get lost in the thinking. We get lost in the worry. We get lost in the anxiety. And so much of the time, we spend in these states of worry and fear and planning and remembering and replaying and feeling bad about it. And I should have said this. And why did I do this? And we could spend the entire day in retreat just in regret or worry And this is very normal. This is what people do. We're lost in thought. We're continually lost in thought. In fact, one great Buddhist master was asked, what do you think of people in the United States? And his response was, lost in thought. It's interesting, right? And the problem is that we believe it. We believe it. I'm the worst meditator here. Everybody's meditating better than me. Look how straight they're sitting up. I'm the only one who moves. I'm the only one who opens their eyes, my eyes. Look how much food I took. I shouldn't have taken so much food. That person took too much food. Why do I, you know, why do I even care? Get back to my meditation, right? It's like this constant reigning in of this wild mind that's trying to make sense of reality all the time. And it's just, it's, it's just, the, it's just what our minds do. And so 
if you're feeling like a meditation failure today or you're thinking, God, I've been meditating for a decade and I still come back to retreat and my mind is wandering all over the place, you're in the right place. You're not doing anything wrong. It is what happens in minds. It is the first day of retreat. We can relax. We can just go, oh, okay, that's what's going to happen. Sometimes it's fun for me. Like I sit down to meditate and, you know, our meditation or daily meditation is often impacted by what's happening in our lives. And sometimes I'll sit down and my mind will just be racing. I've got this to do and that to do. And, oh, I forgot to call this person, blah, blah, blah. And I just go, okay, go ahead, race. Just let it do it. And it usually erases and it does its thing. And then there's a certain point where it begins to calm down. And so the same on retreat. There's a certain point where it kind of exhausts itself. This running about, this endless running about, the ceaseless frenzy that William James called it, the ceaseless frenzy of these minds. They do, that's, that's the beauty of the human mind. It can be trained. So this is the beauty of the science of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity, they used to think that human minds didn't change. The brain couldn't change after 25. That 20 years ago, they really thought this, that your brain changed, changed, changed at 25, and then it stayed the same. Now they know that is absolutely not true, that our brains continue to change based on what we do with them. So if you practice being mean, you're going to get meaner. If you practice being kind, you're going to get kinder. And you create new neural pathways. And this is very inspiring. This is the science that's inspiring, I think, when we talk about how brains can change. So some of the, the analogies about thoughts that I like to, to talk about include, um, especially when working with beginners, and maybe some of you who are old hands to have not heard them, but things like, do you know how when you're thinking and, when, sorry, when you look at a cartoon of people thinking, and, you look, and it's like this bubble, the thought bubble coming out of people's heads. Well, mindfulness can, is like, the, I think of it as the pin of mindfulness that pricks the thought. So you just go, pop, and the thought can disappear. And so we've had that experience sometimes when we're meditating, right, where you're just, you're just, you're lost in your thought, and suddenly you realize, I'm lost in my thought. And then you prick it, and then it just fades away. Not always, but sometimes. Another analogy is the idea of not getting on the train. Perhaps many of you have heard this, but our thoughts are like trains. You're sitting here, you're meditating, you're thinking, okay, what's for lunch? I wonder if they're going to have the, the pizza. Oh, I don't know if they've ever had pizza. It's oh, I had the best pizza last week. Oh, I've got to go back to that place. Maybe I can get that when I get home. When I get off the retreat, I'm going to call that pizza place. And, you know, and your mind just goes and goes and goes. It's like you've gotten on this train and the mind is going 20 miles an hour down the track and then suddenly you go, oh, I've been lost thinking about pizza for hours. No, minutes, whatever it is. But I've been lost. And then you have this great opportunity, which is you can get off the train. You can get off the train. Just get off, okay? There's the thought. Let it bubble away. Or you cannot get on the train in the first place. You can stay at the platform and let the thought go. And you've all had experiences of our thoughts being like clouds just passing by. I also think of the same thing as like a snowball. You know, our thoughts are like snowballs. You start with a little bit of snow. If you don't catch it when it's early, 
it's going to get really big. So that pizza thought started as just one memory, one imagination of pizza. And then 10 minutes later, it's a giant snowball that's overwhelming us. So what we can do, what we do with this practice is we learn to notice these thoughts. And we'll talk more, Mark will talk more tomorrow about all the ways of working with, with these difficult thoughts. And that's the power of mindfulness. The power to see life clearly as it is, to let go of the stories and to come back into the present moment. We diligently return again and again into the present moment, learning to be present with the whole range of experience. So we started you with the breath and I offered the sound today as well as something to pay attention to, but that's just the beginning. We use something neutral to focus the mind, to gather our mind together, essentially. The scattered mind, the mind that's looking out for saber-toothed tigers, is now it begins to gather on something neutral, usually our breath, sometimes sound, sometimes body sensations. So it begins to gather. It's neutral, meaning you don't like it, you don't dislike it. It's just the breath. It's not a big deal. We just keep coming back. But then other things begin to grab our attention and then we pay attention to them. So for instance, you're with your breath, but you start to get an ache in your leg. And so it becomes really obvious. It's stronger than the breath. So we let go of the breath and turn our attention to the achy leg and we stay with that and we're present with that. And then maybe a memory comes and we're present with the memory and then everything dissolves and then we come back to the present moment of being mindful back to the breath. And so there's so many things that we get more and more capacity to be aware of as we meditate. It grows. So it starts with the breath, but then we add sound and body sensations and emotions and thoughts and mental states and then suddenly, and then even seeing and hearing and everything in our experience is what we can be mindful of. And that's the extraordinary thing about this practice. Nothing is excluded. Nothing is excluded from our mindfulness. We have that capacity to have just a mind that is so vast that it can hold everything. Now, what usually happens for people is they start out being mindful and, you know, this happens to beginners quite a bit and then they go and they expect to be able to be mindful even in the most difficult situation. So it's like, I'm really practicing mindfulness and then I'm going to my high school reunion. Ah, where'd my mindfulness go? And our mindfulness takes time to develop. It's, a, it's cultivated. We have to build these... or create these grooves, right? These neural pathways. And so, so if your mindfulness today, especially today, is feeling kind of shaky, just give it time. You don't want to face the most difficult things you have to deal with in life with a small amount of mindfulness. You got to wait for it to grow and then you can face anything. And the, um, the, here I think about the movie Jaws. You remember in Jaws? Well, has everyone, maybe not everybody's seen Jaws. Anyway, Jaws. <laughs> Yeah, what I remember is there was the scene where they know something's out in the ocean, but they don't know what it is. And so they go out in this little dinghy, and then they meet this giant, giant monster, right? This giant shark. And the famous line is, it looks like we're going to need a bigger boat. 
So our mindfulness, it grows to meet the challenges of life. And it will grow over this week as you practice because it builds on itself. Mindfulness builds on mindfulness. It's like you get it into a groove and you just, it just keeps growing. It gets stronger over time. So the qualities of mindfulness include openness and curiosity. So it's not a dullness. My teacher, uh, Sayadaw Upandita, who passed away this year in April, he always talked about it as non-superficiality. This is interesting, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's like, in other words, you can see something and you can just see it on the surface, but you can see something with depth. So if you, if you were, you don't have to do it, but look at your hand and just kind of say, oh yeah, that's a hand. But if you really looked at your hand and you saw the lines and the shapes and you felt it and you really noticed the complexity, this is the kind of looking that mindfulness is, is, is uh, encouraging. It's a non-superficiality. One of the analogies he used to give, I remember, um, was he, would, he was a Burmese master, who I studied with in Burma, Myanmar, and I, and he was an incredible, just an incredible pioneer in the field of bringing mindfulness out to the to the Western world. And he used to say, "If you're noticing your breath, it's like a fork going to a piece of meat, and does the fork go to the meat and jam into the meat? No." Does the fork go towards the meat and then go kind of, ooh, right? No, I'm not describing it for people who can't see me. But, but, um, but, but so you don't want like kind of a loose, lazy stab. And you don't want a really intense stab. You want to go towards the meat with, um, with a clarity, precision, and non-superficiality, just the right level of effort. Now, what happened was he was teaching a bunch of hippies in the 70s and everybody started, in the 80s and 90s, sorry, and everybody started going, you can't talk about meat. (laughs) Can you change that analogy? So then he would talk about tofu. (laughs) So you can take this as tofu, right? By the time I heard him, he was teaching about tofu. But um, (laughs) so so this quality of non-superficiality, of seeing it clearly with openness and curiosity, not the kind of curiosity that makes you think about it. Oh, is it, is my breath, is it my breath on the left side of my body or the right side of my body? Am I feeling, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not the kind of curiosity. It's this non-superficiality, not lost in conception, Sometimes it's talk about bare attention, where it's not lost in, con- in a conception about it. And that's when I was talking today, and I was saying, when you listen to the sound, just listen. Don't get lost in the story of the sound. Just listen. When you feel an ache in your knee, you could start saying, oh, gosh, I'm really going to ruin my knee. What happens? What happens if people meditate for a long time? That's getting lost in a story. I'm going to have to call my chiropractor. Everything's all, I'm, I'm in big trouble now. Bare attention is just being with the experience as it is. And then there's a quality in mindfulness of what I call willingness to be with what is. The quality of equanimity of acceptance of the experience. 
And this is a very profound piece of what you're doing here. As you sit with your experience moment after moment, you create a quality of mind that can be with what is. You don't go running from the room. Maybe some of you have, but most of you stay because you're willing to be with things as they are. And you sit through emotional pain and you sit through physical pain and you sit through great joys and you sit through great sorrow and you do it with this quality of equanimity, even-mindedness, balance, willingness to be with what is. I remember when I first started practicing meditation, it was the concept of equanimity that sold me. I was in my... um, Gosh, I was in my early 20s and I had gone to, to this Buddhist meditation retreat and I remember I was very skeptical. I had been an activist and I had, was pretty sure that meditation was navel-gazing when the world was on fire. And I remember listening to this talk once and the talk was how there's everything changes in the world all the time. And there's always this movement between the positive and the negative. So there's something, it's called the teaching of the worldly, sometimes called worldly dharmas, worldly winds, where there's, where whenever there is gain, there is always loss. Whenever there is pleasure, there is pain. Whenever there is fame, there is disrepute. Whenever there is uh, praise, there is blame. And I heard that teaching, and I realized, and I remember sitting there, I was in this monastery in India, in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama has his government in exile, and I remember sitting there hearing that teaching, and there was this moment where something inside me said, oh, wait a minute, this explains my life. That I'm constantly seeking the good thing, in particular praise, going after praise, wanting to be loved, wanting, you know, at that time, you know, I was just out of college, but it was like wanting my teachers, wanting to get the good grades, wanting all of this goodness, and then running desperately away from the things that were causing me pain, particularly being blamed, loss, grief, sorrow. And so I heard that, and it was this, it was definitely my moment that set me on the path, really. Because within a few minutes, they also explained, the, the, the teacher explained that there actually is freedom here, that there's, there's a possibility of something different. And that is having a mind of peace, having a mind of equanimity that can be peaceful no matter what the ups and downs of life. And I heard that and I thought, I want that, I want that. So when we practice, we create this, we bring to our mindfulness that quality of cultivating equanimity, this ability to be with things as they are. And it, it gets cultivated. It gets cultivated over time. Sometimes we don't like what we get when we're meditating. Maybe we sit in our sorrow or the physical pain or the judgment or the comparing mind. And yet, we're willing to be with it. My daughter, who is now almost seven, is the greatest teacher for me around this. And there was this moment, I remember, when she was quite young. She was about four, and she wanted to go to this play. And I took her to the play, and I, she's 
she at the time particularly she was very, she wasn't used to a lot of noise and and sound she just didn't like it and i said to her we got there and it was just completely chaotic there were tons of kids and i said to her okay look it's not too bad really it's not too bad right because i was trying to kind of sugarcoat it and it was noisy you know and, and, it, and i was like oh it'll be fine it'll be fine you'll be fine right and she looked at me and she said mommy it is noisy but i can handle it and I just, you know, bowed to her, right? Because that's what, you know, it's, anyway. I've learned a lot as a parent. <laughs> Let's just keep it simple and say that. So the last element, or not the last, but another quality of mindfulness is a quality of kindness. That we bring, a, we, we're, we have a kind approach to how we are mindful that every time our mind wanders away, we don't yell at ourselves, get back to the breath. But we just gently come back. And there's a loving element. And you did, today you did loving kindness practice. And that, could, that the, the spirit of loving kindness can be infused in our mindfulness practice. And it's just something to pay attention to. Am I, what is the quality of my mind when I come back to the breath? Do I say thinking or do I say thinking? Do I, do I yell at myself in my mind? Am I judging myself? How can I have more openness and more love? Because this practice cultivates love. You know, one of the studies seems to show, one of the studies, there's, they do these things called meta-analyses where they look at all of the studies together and they try to find correlations. And one of the studies shows that people often report, after doing mindfulness, more sense of well-being and self-acceptance. More love. This is what this practice cultivates. So we do this present moment attention diligently, moment after moment, practicing it. And for those of you, many of you have experience, and I just really encourage you to make every moment mindful. Why not? I mean, it's not going to happen, but try, right? Try to make every moment mindful. That from the moment you get up, you know what? My teacher used to always ask everybody, he would quiz, he would say, did you wake up on the in-breath or the out-breath? <laughs> I tried for months to figure that one out, never figured it out. But, you can, but what he meant was, are you mindful the moment you wake up? Are you aware? Are you in the present? Are you practicing these qualities of seeing clearly, bare, um, bare attention, non-superficiality, kindness, being with things, right in the moment? And then, so you get up and you're mindful as you, as you run to the bathroom, no, as you mindfully, slowly walk to the bathroom, as you brush your teeth, as you get dressed, as you walk down the hill, as you get your food. You can be practicing it. And the simplest way to practice it, for those of you who are not experienced, is staying in the physicality of your experience. It's a gift to have Jill here because she's such a master in teaching us how to be embodied with our mindfulness. We can, every moment we can be present. As I reach to look at the clock to see how many more minutes I have, I'm noticing the sensations of my arm moving in space. I'm feeling the tightness and the stretching and there's heat and there's a clutching and then I'm placing it back down and I'm placing it on the table 
And then I'm letting go and I'm feeling the softness and the release. Everything can be a moment of mindfulness. Watching, experiencing our physicality, experiencing our mental life, noticing, oh, thinking, judging, planning, remembering. There's so much to notice internally, physically and mentally. So as we practice, as I think you know, or you wouldn't be here, we start to experience so many amazing fruits of our practice. We experience more self-love and compassion. Remember these outcomes connected to mindfulness. We're more compassionate. We're more, we're able to appreciate life. Gratitude is one of the outcomes of mindfulness, that we have more gratitude because you're in the moment. You're not skipping the moment. You're not missing it. You're not lost in your iPhone. You're here, right? We have insights into the nature of our life and, our rea- and into the nature of reality because as we calm our mind and come into a place of more focused, gathered, collected, concentrated mind. It pl- it's like plowing the field for the seeds of insight to arise. So we don't have to work too hard at it. It just happens. If you start looking around, when am I going to have an insight? Don't they call this insight meditation sometimes? It's not going to work. Trust me, I tried that for years. You just do the day-to-day or the moment-to-moment work of being as present as you can. And then as the mind settles and as the awareness becomes clearer, it's, it's like um, suddenly we begin to see things more clearly. The word vipassana, which is often what insight meditation is the translation of, just means seeing clearly. That's beautiful. We're doing seeing clearly meditation. So mindfulness is so loaded with all these other things. Maybe we just practice seeing clearly. And as we practice, we come into more and more of a sense of ease in our being, a sense of self-love, a sense of recognition of our true nature, of our own goodness that's right here all the time. This is the profound power of mindfulness. Mindfulness in the larger cultural arena may be about paying attention so you can feel better or so you can get out of suffering, which is really helpful. But as we practice, we discover that there's so much more depth to mindfulness than you know, than you probably ever imagined when you first started. Because it leads you more and more deeply into yourself and your own true luminous nature. Like, that's it. That's where we're going. We, um, you know, it's like the, the activity often done with kids is you take a snow globe and you shake it up. And you say, look at that. That's my busy mind. You know, the, the, like a, the Eiffel Tower and a little globe, a little glass globe or something. And the glitter is, is, is being wildly shaken. And then as you sit and you might take a kid and you just take, you know, let's take some breaths and watch the glitter go to the bottom. And then we see clearly. And then we can access our deepest nature. And then we can have more and more of an ability to love and connect with ourselves. This is the practice. This is what's so joyful about the practice. There's so much goodness 
as we do it. There's goodness in the beginning, there's goodness in the middle, there's goodness in the end. It's all wrapped up in this. So um, I want to end with two quotes from two different gurus. The first is Minjur Rinpoche, and he says, he's a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, he says, we don't have to look outside the present moment to experience wisdom, compassion, and the boundless purity of our true nature. In fact, these things can't be found anywhere but the present moment. So that's your first quote. And then the second quote is um, from the guru Winnie the Pooh, who really maybe is talking to the essence of what we're doing here. And, uh, well, it's actually Christopher Robin, sorry, in this case. He says, but what I like doing best is nothing, said Christopher Robin. How do you do nothing, asked Pooh, after he wondered about it for a long time. Well, it's when people call out at you just as you're going off to do it. What are you going to do, Christopher Robin? And you say, oh, nothing. And then you go and do it. So that's what we're doing here, really. We're actually doing nothing. (laughs) We're doing everything. We're doing nothing. And the beauty of it is that um, we sit with that paradox. We sit in the place of the trust in our practice and just let it unfold, let it unfold and see what happens. There's so much joy awaiting you. So let's take a moment to, um, to just be with ourselves. And I would encourage you to just connect for a moment with what you love about mindfulness and your mindfulness practice. And if you're newer, maybe just see what's already starting to bubble up or see what happens. What do I love? What nourishes me? Where have I seen changes in my life thanks to this practice? Notice how it feels as you recall this. And then let's just sit for the last 10 seconds or so, and be mindful, present, alert, connected, right here, nowhere else to go. Tension wanders away, come back. If you can't find the truth right here, Where are you going to find it?
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.